abolition. Today. So John Ehrlichman Today. was one of the henchmen for Richard Nixon. I say henchman because he was one of the organizers of Watergate, um, and that was proven out. He got convicted and sent to prison for his role in the crimes of Watergate. Now, one of the things he got sent to prison for was conspiracy. This Watergate was a conspiracy. They planned to break into the Democratic headquarters, steal information about them, basically undermine our democracy. Right? Well, it turns out they had another conspiracy, which Ehrlichman bragged about back in 1994. He said it to a writer named Dan Baum, and for some reason it has sat in the dustbin of history until this moment. And Harper's Magazine, in this April edition, uh, ran his original quotes from back in 94. Ehrlichman, now out of prison and out of politics, felt, I guess, that he had nothing to lose, so he was going to be honest about why they started the war on drugs. And if you remember, it was Nixon. The Nixon administration started what they called the war on drugs back in 1971. Turns out, it was not because they were concerned that drugs were really dangerous for Americans. It was for attacking their political enemy. Now, again, you might think, like, come on, this sounds conspiratorial. First of all, it's the guy who did the conspiracy who's admitting it. Second of all, he got arrested for and convicted on another conspiracy. It's not like he's shy about conspiracies. And Nixon, third of all, had an enemies list. <laughs> These are all facts. So now here's Ehrlichman in his own words. He says, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. How do you see that and then not want to immediately and this nonsense political war on drugs, this prohibition that has proven to be disastrous in its effect, but it turns out it was done to be a war on and black people and, black and liberals, which who they called hippies back then. Now, originally they were trying to use more of the legislation of heroin against blacks, but it turns out later they were like, oh, blacks smoke marijuana just like whites do. Okay, let's arrest them for that. And they arrested them at four times the rate of whites even though they smoke at the same rate. The whole point was to make sure that they could arrest their political enemy. And black people, how could you know that and still be in favor of the war on drugs? Well, uh, Ehrlichman goes on. He says, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. When asked about whether and Dick Nixon intended to do that. He said, quote, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Free my people, yeah. free all my people. Free my people, yeah. free all my people. Let them go. Tell the lawyers and the courts and the judge that the war on drugs is a war on us. It's power to the people, destruction to the system. Free all of the drug offenders that are stuck in prison. The drug war is nothing but a corporate war for profit. And every drug arrest is money in somebody's pocket. The rich get richer at the expense of the rest of us. Convict of interest, cops profit by arresting us. When they imprison you for drugs, the only victims do, they say it's for your well-being. But that simply isn't true. The drug war's a business prison is an institute of wage slavery. For the companies who get in loot by locking up non-violent individuals. Drug offenders of any kind. 
things were corrected, then the system would be broke. If the system went broke, then the system would collapse. Drug offenders are criminals and victims of attack. They are prisoners of war for the profit of corporations and the government who forces laws upon the population. So tell the lawyers in the courts and the judge that the war on drugs is a war on us. It has been a hoax since before Richard Nixon. The system is broke, yet they claim it don't need fixing. Isn't it obvious? Big corporate lobbyists created the drug war because that's what all the profit is. Now we suffering while these blood suckers in the government bringing all of the drugs, guns, and money in. And they punishing first-time felons for using up for selling with a draconian sentence. Nonviolent offenders shouldn't have to do a day locked away in a prison cell for someone else's pay. This is what I say. It's time we put an end to this. We're against the people and it's all the prison exodus. Whether they're conscious of it or not It's not just the users and the dealers and their families And people locked up that are affected by it negatively It's everyone Whether it's the taxpayers whose money is going into this black hole of a failed war on drugs Or it's people who are affected by everyday violence and crime That is the result of the war on drugs You know, this is actual factual information It's a conspiracy, not a conspiracy theory Corporate conspiracy and it's backed by our government. 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 Let's go, y'all. Get big on it. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard a clip from Sink Uyghur and Anna Kasparian of the Young Turks about Nixon's war on drugs, and this was followed up with a track from Diesel Automatic entitled War on Drugs is a War on Us. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. My name is Yusuf Hassan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Peace, Sam. I'm here at the Paul Coffee Abolitionist Center, uh, streaming live. Hey, awesome, awesome. You know, uh, before we begin, Max, I want to say thank you, along with uh, brothers Ben O'Hannibal, Ross Sun, Scotty Reed, and Nine Elements for holding the fort down with you while I was, you know, going through some sport, spiritual warfare that was disguised as illness. You know, yep, and I'm glad all praises due to God that I'm back. I survived. I'm back stronger and more laser focused. So I just wanted to get that in before we get into this because we got a great program scheduled for tonight. Welcome back, brother. I haven't seen you since we had a, a different president. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was uh-huh. yeah. It was a lot of things. Different president. It was a different year. <laughs> a lot of stuff going on. Uh. So tonight our guest will be Dr. Robert Chase. He is the former public historian at Avery Research Center for African American History and Culture. He is currently an associate professor in the Department of History at SUNY Stony Brook out in Long Island, New York. And he's author of We Are Not Slaves, State Violence, Coerced Labor, and Prisoners' Rights in Post-War America. And of course, we got some dope music like you just heard. A uh, little bit of, you know, maybe some spoken word to be... Uh, 
passed across the airlines, and we'll hear the voices of our ancestors reclaimed without bridging the gap segment. So let's get started. Uh, Max, tell us what you think about the opening clip and the uh, song. Dude, man, first of all, you know, we pride ourselves on starting out with a bang. And what bigger bang than to have it right there? You can hear for yourself. This is in the words of Ehrlichman, who admitted that Nixon started this war on drugs as a war against black people. And, you know, they say blacks and hippies, but hippies is ideology. You can't stop being black. You can stop being a hippie at any time. So it really was mm-hmm. against black and brown people, you know, and that was him admitting it. And the sick part of it is that uh, the magazine had held it since 1994 and didn't release it until 2016, this information, as if, you know, all that time they were protecting us from what? The truth uh, that we, that Nixon started the war on drugs specifically to target black people in the wake of the black liberation movement. We all knew he was racist. But that right there is proof of a crime against humanity done by the sitting president of the United States. The very same president was forced to resign because he was crooked. (laughs) He even got impeached the whole nine yards. Right. And to follow that up with Brother Diesel Automatic, he broke it down like it was a class with hip hop. And you know that we like to drop stuff like that. Uh, The brother was just dropping facts and it fit perfectly. This is where he began and here we're where we're at right now. But you know, this is a war on us. So, yeah, Absolutely, and and when we, when we look at the sheer numbers, I mean, the estimated prison population back in uh, 1970, and I believe it was 1971 when uh, Nixon. It was July of 71 when Nixon gave his famous speech where he was declaring drug abuse public enemy number one. The prison population was estimated to be about 200,000 at the time, and we're well over two million now. So we see how astronomically the numbers increase and we see what it did to our communities you know and the question always you know or the talk always comes up and they start saying mass incarceration but it wasn't just about locking people up but it was locking specific people up you know and we know it was us the war on drugs is the war on us just like diesel automatic said and you know he dropped some very powerful bombs in the song and one that just jumped right out at me, he said, you know, if, you know, they call it correctional facilities. And he said, if the inmates were corrected, the system would collapse. <laughs> yeah, you know? right. And you and I talk about that a lot, that we know, you know, when we start talking about the removing of the exception clause, that we know the collateral effect would cause 70% of the prison population to to drop. That's what... You know, uh, crunching the numbers says. Yep. Yeah, that's that's what crunching the numbers says. The recidivism rates, if they ever got that under control, that would make the prison system go broke as well because it's, I think it's 50 and 75% state and federal, or federal and state, rather. Uh, 50 for federal and 75 for state. So three quarters of a chance you're coming right back in the door you went out of. That's reusable resources. And without that, uh, it would lose a whole lot of prisoners. But uh, man, yeah. it's been a, it, we missed you, bro. And and I need to make an announcement too. First, I'm glad yes. that well, the worst thing the devil could do is not kill us, and he always tried. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, but Took also, a great shot at me. I mean, when I when I went into the hospital, you know, I was near death without even knowing it. 
Mm. You know, and I went through several diagnoses, and they said, oh, you have this, you have that, and here I am, you know, we got in a hospital, and everything is gone. You know, so I say all praise is due to God for that. Amen. Um, Speaking of the cycle of life, uh, my son and his wife are waiting for their uh, most recent child to be born, their fourth. And uh, they're expecting a little girl any minute now. And her name is Zola Danielle Sheila Mays. So that'll be our 19th grandchild. Wow. Uh, wow. That's a blessing. Justice. And, you know, Justice was yeah. the one that spent some time, a lot of time, uh, caught up in the system. And now he's living his dream, you know. Sometimes yeah. the, worst, the worst is just the beginning of the best, you know. Absolutely. Well, you have the song or the, the song Justice or poem Justice, and I still can't listen to it. And he's been home, what, five years now? About that, yes. About five yeah, years. I still can't listen to it. Well, uh, without, you know, I, I, I want to go ahead and start bringing in our guest so he can get into the conversation as soon as possible because I know he was listening uh, to the opening track and maybe we can get some comments about that from him as well. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome in Robert T. Chase, uh, as described in our intro, uh, Professor Robert T. Chase and author of the book, We Are Not Slaves, State Violence, Coerced Labor, and Prisoners' Rights in Post-War America. He and I have had several long conversations, man, very fulfilling, and I've got a feeling tonight is going to be extra special. So welcome, Robert. Mm-hmm. Hi, Max. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you so much for having me on. The show. I'm actually very excited, and uh, that opening clip makes it incredibly clear uh, that the construction of prisons in this country and the vast turn towards incarceration as a social solution to the crisis of capitalism was always um, focused, known, and conscious. The system was conscious of what it was doing, um, which was uh, to throw black and brown bodies into cages as a way to contain um, social unrest, civil rights, Mm -hmm. protest, black Mm -hmm. power, Mm -hmm. the Chicano movement, and the general crisis that capitalism faced as we moved into the early recession of the 1970s. So that's a great place to start our conversation. Amen to that. And, you know, I love it when Mm -hmm. I guess walk in the door throwing bows. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had a conversation with you earlier, Mac, so you got me all pinned up. Yes, sir, man. I I like it. You know, if you're going to speak, speak clear. If you're going to say something, say truth. You know, call Mm -hmm. it what it is. And I noticed not only in our personal conversations, but also in the parts of your book that I read that you stay pretty consistent with that and identifying this thing properly. Uh, in the book, you talk about, you know, the prisoners in the 70s, uh, beginning, I believe it was David Ruiz, uh, am I correct? David Ruiz? Uh, beginning with him, yeah, and they I, were identifying yeah, it as slavery. Yeah, I can give people a, a snapshot of the book if you want me to do that, but I, I'd like to you know, let your, your audience know a little bit about me. I, um, you know, I was, I was born in, in New York city in the late sixties and then lived around Washington DC in the, uh, late seventies as a young man and 1980s. And so I, I saw 
firsthand through, you know, friends and, and family um, in a pretty racially integrated school system, what the ravages of um, incarceration, the war on drugs and the crack epidemic meant. So I saw that personally. And when I, I took to my doctoral dissertation, I was really interested first in civil rights. So I'm a civil rights and labor movement scholar. And I wasn't even thinking of prisons immediately, but I was thinking about, you know, why, why after the successes of the civil rights movement, did we still live in an age just beset with racial inequalities, healthcare, economics, housing, uh, and rights? And, and why, why didn't the civil rights movement in fact, really reshaped the country in the way that it should have. Um, sure, black people could vote, but that really hadn't changed some of the fundamental socioeconomic inequalities that we call today structural racism. And uh, so I, I started to, to look around my own world and see the encroachment of policing and the crack epidemic, uh, so-called, and the war on drugs. And um, it became increasingly clear to me that prisons had to be part of that equation, um, that, that prisons and incarceration were about reversing the gains of the civil rights movement and erecting another age of racial inequality and disparity. And so as a civil rights scholar, I also wanted to tell a story of uh, prisoner resistance, um, at moments at which the prisoners themselves initiated their own civil rights movement. So I, I turned to the study of what had been the longest running uh, civil rights trial at the time, which ran from 1978 to 1980, but was initiated uh, decades earlier through prisoner complaint and uh, civil rights lawsuits. And what mm -hmm. came out of that was a case called Ruiz v. Estelle, which overturned the entirety of the Texas prison system. And I can talk a little bit more about why and what was behind that, but it was a monumentally important case. But it had been told through the lens of judges, attorneys, civil rights lawyers, but I wanted to uh, uh, look at the people who put this uh, together in the first place. As one historian, Riza Golyabov, names it, when people on the ground invoke the machinery of the law on their own behalf. And so I wanted to look at the incarcerated people who turned to the courts, who turned to the law, and who engaged in political organizing behind bars to put the system itself on trial. And so that is, that is what my book is about, and I can talk more about the system because in Texas, I argue, it was a system of double enslavement, and I can talk about what that what that system of enslavement represented and meant. You know, you're coming coming to these conclusions of what it was holistically uh, reminds me a lot of uh, Asada Shakur, and she mm -hmm. had a moment where it really clicked for her. In her book, she says, uh, "Don't you know that slavery was an outlaw?" She was talking to a guard. And no, the guard says, you're wrong. Slavery was outlawed with the exception of prisons. Slavery is legal in prisons. 
And I looked it up for sure, and sure enough, she was right. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist for the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Well, that explained a lot of things. That explained why jails and prisons all over the country are filled to the brim with black and third world people, why so many people can't find a job on the streets and are forced to survive mm-hmm. the best way that they know how. Once you're in prison, there are plenty of jobs, and if you don't want to work, they beat you up and throw you in a hole. If every state had to pay workers to do jobs prisoners are forced to do, the salaries would amount to billions. Prisons are a profitable business. They are a way of legally perpetuating slavery. In every state, more and more prisons are being built, and even more on the drawing board. Who are they for? They're certainly not planning to put white people in them. Prisons are a part of this government's genocidal war against black and third world people. Shout out to score and autobiography. Yeah, it reminded me of that. What was your click moment? I know you said, I got to look out mm. and start seeing more, but what was it that made it all click and you saw the system in its, as an entirety? Well, you know, I, I mean, when you come to these subjects, right, I'm, I'm coming at this as a, uh, well, James Baldwin, first of all, said the first mistake you can make is when you think you're white. And what he meant by that was that whiteness itself as an identity um, is one grounded in, in a kind of uh, colonial exploitation. So you had to, you had to break that down um, on a personal level. But what, um, for me, uh, it, I, I started this as a civil rights story. So looking at this legally, looking at it in the courts, and then reading the prisoner testimonies. But what this book um, is really about are the over 60 oral histories that I conducted with uh, incarcerated people behind uh, the bars of Texas. I um, was able to go inside and, and do five or six hour interviews. And I have to tell your audience that um, it, I'm supposed to be coming at this as an educator, but the people who educated me were the, the people who lived it, the people in prison. Um, they taught me. That that was the click moment, was hearing their stories, doing their oral histories. And um, here's what I discovered about this particular prison system which is different than the one that exists today. This prison system uh, existed until the court case in the 1980s, but it was double enslavement, and here's why. On on the outside, prisoners worked literally in Texas on former slave plantations, and there they picked the cash crop of cotton, they cleared the land, they harvested so many agricultural goods that they became – Uh, known as the state's greatest agribusiness during the post-war period. And that continues into the 1980s. But they did it at an extremely low cost. They had almost no rehabilitative programs as they did in California or the Northeast. And they uh, made prison labor the diet of every prisoner. They worked six days a week, 10-hour days, 
all out in the sun, and they were picking cotton up through the 1980s, and it was cheap. In 1951, the average cost of maintaining a prisoner in 44 states was $2.25, but in Texas, it was 49 cents, so five times less, and that, that cheapness continued through the 1970s. In 1978, when they go to trial, Texas spent only $47 million to hold 23,000 prisoners, whereas New York and California spent 18 and 20,000, uh, uh, spent five times as much for a prison population uh, that was the same size. So New York spent $218 million, California 269 Texas only 47 million. What was behind that? What allowed that to operate? That's what I wanted to learn. And what yeah. I discovered was this, that prisoners functioned for the system as guards in a system that replicated the slave driver system where prisoners operated as guards and those prisoners were selected by the prison administration. They ran an internal sex trade economy. They bought and sold prisoner bodies. They turned the internal world of prisons into a slave market, and uh, they ruled the prison system. And at the head of every uh, system, uh, every every prison was a head-building tender. That's what these prisoner as guards were called and that prisoner was overwhelmingly white. So what I discovered was a system of double enslavement. A slave for the state out in the fields, picking cotton, producing agribusiness, keeping it cheap, and then within the prison, uh, prisoners who acted as guards more often than not who were white, who could buy and sell other prisoner bodies in a state-orchestrated sexual market. Often we think about prison rape as part of an individual's pathology. But in these southern systems, with these slave-driving mechanisms, it was state-orchestrated sexual violence. And it was the prisoners themselves that documented this system and then took it to federal court with a civil rights class action lawsuit known as Ruiz v. Estelle. And, uh, yeah. Wow. That is uh, definitely the information that our audience wants to hear uh, about how this works. kind of reminds me or puts me in mind of an indentured servant working as an overseer on a plantation is what you're mm-hmm. describing. You know, uh, we, the white people are still put into a position of power, even though they themselves are on the same plantation and behind the same cages. And because they're gifted privileges, uh, they will do it. Uh, and kill for it. These tenders, you call them, right? Mm-hmm. That's what the system called them, building tenders. And they said they were just. The other thing about this, Max, is that the. You know, the other thing I discovered is that what keeps the criminal justice afloat? Prevarication, lies. Uh, they made the argument that these guys in the system, they don't have any power. They're just janitors. They're not doing anything wrong. And the prisoners, just like people in the Black Lives Matter movement through their cell phones, had to document, document, show over and over again that the building tenders were engaged in a sex trade market and violence, brutality, torture. They would hang prisoners from the bars with uh, uh, handcuffs, um, 
they engaged in what was called uh, circling, which they drew a circle on the wall and then put a prisoner's nose in the circle. And if they moved their face out of that circle over a 24-hour period, they would be beaten brutally in front of other prisoners. These were public pronunciations of power and dehumanization. Uh, And there were a whole series of different kinds of tortured punishments. But the system said, this doesn't exist. We run a very clean, efficient, orderly system. We don't have Attica. We don't have George Jackson. Uh, We're a low-cost, efficient, controlled system, and people behind bars are inherent liars because they're criminals. That's the argument they made. And the prisoners themselves had to document this over and over again uh, to show, in fact, that the prison system was running a system not only of enslavement, but dehumanization and rampant violence and brutality. Yeah, like uh, whipping, for example, I believe uh, didn't end until 1972, right? In prisons. Um, they were still whip- I'm sorry. Li- literally whipping people in prisons legally all the way up until 1970s. It, yeah, the, the, the bat um, sometimes was outlawed in some states in the South, but it, it did certainly continue. But, you know, what they could do is engage in, in, in violence um, whenever they wanted to. And, and when, you, uh, when you have other prisoners do that violence, it makes it easier for the system to not be held accountable. They can, uh, let's say, for instance, um, a prisoner was writing a lawsuit and they didn't want that prisoner to write that lawsuit. Well, they could, they could sick these building tenders on them. And Mm -hmm. when the building tenders engaged in violence, uh, they would, as a disciplinary report, just say that it was a fight. That it was just a fight between people. um, And therefore it wasn't a case of the state stepping in to engage in this kind of violence. So it made it very difficult for the state to be held to account for the violence that they were doing. But so much like the the slave system uh, that it operated, they also had a system, for instance, called houseboys, where prisoners, and these are male prisoners and only really African-American men, worked in the homes of wardens and captains, and they worked as live-in servants, very similar to the way in which an enslaved person would work in the home of a slave master. Um, and they, they worked as a domestic servant um, through the 1980s in a live-in arrangement that replicated everything that uh, domestic slavery might have replicated. You know, it's hmm. funny you should say that because we have a clip prepared today that was uh, recorded in 2020 of a parish sheriff uh, lamenting the fact that his good Negroes in prison are being released when he needs them to wash his cars and uh, put, change the oil and clean up and work on the lawns and make the food. <laughs> like, we literally have a white sheriff in Louisiana, the prison client for the world, talking about how he don't want to let them go because they're the good ones. Good guy. You know, it just doesn't end, does it, Max? I had one guy I I interviewed. um, He was a a guard. And they had an African-American man in their home. And here's the other ironic thing. Those people, overwhelming, more often than not, were there for murder. Why? 
because they had the longest prison sentences and they had the most to lose if they didn't have that position. It was a position people wanted. They wanted out of the prison. And if you worked in the fields, I mean, that's a 10-hour workday in the sun um, doing terribly difficult work. Um, So people wanted this position. But this particular prisoner was named, quote-unquote, Cooney, like Coon, right? Uh, Now, they said his name was Cooney because he hunted raccoons and would eat raccoons at the house. But, of course, that has a double entendre, and the the racist connotation is clear. Um, But uh, this person was considered as part of the family, according to this prison guard, uh, and they would be there with them at Christmas. Uh, But this person had to prepare the food get the Christmas presents ready, and then he was allowed to stand at the door and he would get two packs of cigarettes as his Christmas present as the family opened theirs. So here was this guy who grew up with this uh, domestic cell servant as, uh, as, as a domestic cell servant in his home, had a kind of familial relationship with him, but of course it's all one of white supremacy, racial oppression, and power. Um, and this practice continued until the Ruiz case in the early 1980s. Well, I'm sure that uh, Yusuf has a couple questions he want to ask you, and I do have a few more as well. Uh, so what I'm going to do is pass the mic to uh, Brother Yusuf and see if he wants to follow up at this point. That's great. And Yusuf, it's very nice to meet you. I'm, I'm uh, so glad to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Yes, nice meeting you as well. And, you know, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule you know, to uh, come in with us. And, I mean, like Max said from the beginning, you've been doing nothing but throwing elbows and, you know, roundhouses and everything. And I'm just sitting here. I'm taking notes. You know, I I purchased the book this morning, so I want to be able to read through it. You know, know, from what I've glanced at, I mean, you've, you've done tremendous work, you know, on this book. And, you know, we'll talk more about the book later when, you know, you close out and you get everybody all the information. But I wanted to, uh, you know, I'm I'm loving the titles of your chapters. And I wanted to, if you bear with me one second, it was one particular chapter that I'd love for you to be able to break down for us a little bit. And mm-hmm as it relates to what's going on now with COVID-19. And it's just, just your, uh, your first one, where it says fears of contagion, strategies of containment. And mm. it's path- uh, pathologizing homosexuality, incarcerating bodies, and resa- reshaping the southern prison farm. Mm. Yeah. So if you could uh, speak to that a little bit. Mm, I'd love to do that, yeah. Um, so... Um, there's a, uh, a, a, a theorist named Edward Soja, and Edward Soja wrote that um, space reveals, hides, and contains power, that how pay, space is laid out in our lives, the physical presence of where we're placed um, is about power, and so that really influenced me when I was thinking about parts of this book and uh, what that first chapter is about fears of contagion strategies of containment 
is about the moment in which after the Second World War, uh, Southern prisons um, largely had prisoners living in a dormitory environment. They weren't in cells um, like in the Northeast. They were in large dormitories. Um, they called them – they have all these um, – weird nomenclature. They called them prison farms. I call them what they are, prison plantations. They're not farms, mm-hmm. they're plantations. But uh, in this space, um, what was happening was uh, they thought, or they feared, that uh, homosexuality was spreading. Uh, in the post-war period, there was a, a, a study of sexuality uh, by a sociologist named Alfred Kinsey. And there, uh, men returning from World War II, some had admitted uh, in numbers they didn't expect to um, having homosexual relations. So post-war reformers Mm. were really concerned about perversion and the spread of homosexuality. And they used a kind of Cold War uh, framing. The Cold War was all about the containment of communism, for instance. And we're going to contain communism because it's infiltrating everywhere. Well, in the same way, sexually, they feared that homosexuality was infiltrating returning men from World War II. And these were, they were wanting to reinstill a kind of patriarchal male-oriented system in that domestic family. And they feared that prisons were doing that. So they brought in a very famous reformer from the Osborne Association who had been part of the war department. And he made the argument that they had to turn to cells to control homosexuality because it was spreading in physical space. But then as they built these cells, what that actually did is that allowed these building tenders, these trustees, these prisoner guards to accelerate their power because now they had such power that they could select other prisoners from other wings, cells, or even from other prisons and move them into their cell or someone else. And if you have the power to do that, you have the power to buy and sell that arrangement uh, as sexual commodity. So uh, that's, what, that's what happened. And so what this, what this book is about is the way in which space itself is a place of political contestation. Now, the other thing I want to raise real quickly, Yusef, is on mm-hmm. COVID. You know, I I was speaking with one prisoner who is a prisoner organizer, and he told me recently that he was moved out of his cell uh, into another area where they knew that they had COVID. And he kind of laughingly said, was that purposeful? Well, maybe. Um, But the one thing that I found was cell displacement was a way to break down political organizing within the prison. Because as the 60s accelerated in the 70s, and you had the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement, and the Chicano Movement, Texas and the South ran entirely racially segregated prisons. And the one thing they thought they could do is if you were uh, writing civil rights cases, they would move you into the cell of a, a black prisoner with a white prisoner or a white prisoner with a Latino prisoner in the hopes that you guys would kill each other. Uh, but mm-hmm. In fact, what happened was there was a group of prisoners who were documenting the abuses. They had one client 
Um, they were black, white, and Latino. They put them onto the same wing, and guess what? Instead of killing each other, they taught each other. They became each other's teachers. They read France Fanon. They read Malcolm X. They read material from the Chicano movement, and it's out of that group that all these civil rights cases blossomed. So the, the point is, is that one of the techniques or the tools of carceral discipline is to use space to intimidate people. Um, one prisoner that I wrote about was put into an all African-American wing, and then the head building tender was told to rape this man over and over again because he would not he would not stop his civil rights cases, and that's what they did. In the same way that displacement today in a cell is a way to silence political organization because you can put that person in a worse wing, you can put them on a gang wing, you can put them uh, near COVID, and then their lives are in jeopardy. Hmm. Or put them on solitary confinement. You know, we, we we know some that have been on there 30, 40 years in solitary confinement. Or if we think about what happened to uh, Hugo Yogi Pinnell, you know, he was on uh, solitary confinement for about three or four decades. And then when they, they, they put him out in population to be murdered. Right. You know, I call that carceral assassination. It's, it's knowing and it's a willing plot. Um, for instance, there was a black uh, panther that I write about named Johnny Swift, very, very active. And the first effort to silence him was to isolate him. They put him on death row even though he was not slated for execution. And that didn't work. Mm. He continued to do his political organizing. Um, he initiated the largest uh, and first statewide prison strike in 1978 in, in accordance with Ruiz. It occurred four days after the trial started as a way to show solidarity with the brothers in court. And uh, then in 1982, uh, the doors to his cell are suddenly opened on a wing that uh, on, on death row and a very well-known and notorious um, murderer named James Dumachetti uh, walked down the corridor mm -hmm. and apparently had a free world knife and killed him and knifed him to death. Well, that was as the prisoners who documented it at the time knew that was an assassination. Um, and there's no way that those cell doors would be unrolled and unlocked without the knowledge of the administration. And when I tried to get records from the administration on that particular prisoner, even though I could get it for any other prisoner, um, they refused to give me any of those records. And we probably know why, which is it wouldn't tell us anything good. When I hear these stories that you're telling me of actual incidents that have occurred, I can't help but look at them through antebellum eyes. Uh, because, you know, there's a straight line drawn from chattel slavery till now. And these mm -hmm. are the, like the rapes, for instance, with Buck, that, that was known as butt breaking, you know, uh, and they would do it on a regular basis. And everything that they're doing in these prisons is the very same thing they were doing during chattel slavery in order to control our populations, to control our leadership. Uh, to con uh, they, would, they would literally have one of your family members who would be working either in the field or from the house be the, the one whipping you if you did something wrong. In order for everybody mm -hmm. else to see, it's very much like that Willie Lynch, albeit uh, mythology, but it's very much like the structure of that letter, uh, being putting us against each other. And you also point that out not only across 
those who are the descendants of slaves, but also as well as with the Mexicans uh, and how uh, there was this divide between the Mexicans and blacks continuously, much like uh, Ali Sadiq's Mexican got boots on, (laughs) you know. And in chapter eight, you went into some details about what brought them together was this basic understanding of what it is that they were dealing with. See if I can quote you here. You said, uh, African-Americans and Chicano prisoners struck an alliance to make their slave-like conditions legible. I would argue it wasn't slave-like, that it was slavery. But I see where you're coming from. I see to make them legible to the public through the process of legal documentation at political testimony. Then you went on further to say that uh, integral to the Southern Prisoners' Rights campaign was a language of resistance that claimed that Southern prisoners, in particular, were explicit examples of 20th, 20th century slavery. Um, and then finally, uh, you say that the conditions of Southern incarceration rendered both black and brown prisoners as literal and legal slaves. So that was the unifier right there. We're both getting this slavery thing done to us. And it brought them together, but that piece is intermittent. Am I correct? Well, you know, that was the most revelatory thing for me, uh, Max, was to, to see a movement. When they went to court, they produced this handbill. It was a six-page handbill, and on the front, and I have a copy of that handbill in the book, on the, and they produced this across the prison. They sent it out to the press. They sent it to the prisoners. They sent it to politicians. They sent it to civil rights attorneys. It said, in 1865, slavery was outlawed, but not in Texas prisons but not in Texas prisons. And then it went on to show how prisons functioned as slavery. But the revelatory thing for me was to see prisoners who were not just uh, African-American prisoners, but some prisoners who were white as well, and uh, prisoners uh, who were Chicano prisoners, speak of themselves as slaves, as slaves. When they when they when they wrote letters to one another, when they uh, when they put out their political pamphlets, they called one another slave, that they were in a slave system, uh, and that they were fellow slaves, and this was shared across uh, racial bounds, and that it became an interracial movement because they all knew that the condition of their incarceration had rendered them all as slaves, black. Brown, and even some white prisoners who sided with them. Now, within that, I say that white prisoners were privileged and did have uh, power over others, so they had a few white allies. But mostly it was Latino and African-American prisoners that saw themselves as slaves. And this is the argument that they made when they went to court. And it's no surprise that uh, eight out of the 11 states in the South have the, uh, pr- their entire prison system or their main prison declared as unconstitutional. From 1964 to 1995, there were a whole slew of cases. Only four states outside of the South have a similar declaration of having an unconstitutional prison system. But what I, what I argue in the book is that all this legal work is not a product. It's a process. That prisoner documentation, litigation, legal testimony is not just a legal product, but it's a process, a transformative 
process that lets you know, hey, you're not alone. It's about individual consciousness first. This system is slavery. They have to come to that realization first. Then truth-telling, then solidarity, and then collective resistance. Because what they were doing was telling the truth. And they had to let the system know this is the reality of what you've created. We have covered the past and the the present at at this moment. I'd like to cover the future. But before I do that, I do want to step back in the past just for a minute. And, uh, you know, we have had this discussion before uh, where the place that you used to work at, the Avery Institute, uh, my wife and I were down there one day doing a TV interview. And then we went to the Avery Institute to visit the facilities and we got into a conversation with the people there about the 13th Amendment, about uh, you know what it is we were doing and found out like we were literally the first slavery abolitionists to visit that place since its founding in the late 1800s. So anyway, mm-hmm. uh, they introduced us to who I can't remember names. You probably know their names. I'm talking about the tall, uh, light-skinned brother. That was the one we spoke Curtis, to first. Curtis, probably yes. Mr. Uh, Mr. Curtis Frank. Yes, I believe it was Curtis Frank. And then he introduced us to uh, a, a, a woman I believe was the director at the time. And we uh, had a nice long doctor, conversation. Doctor, Dr. Patricia Williams Lassane. See, you know who I'm talking about. So for her, <laughs> four months, it was an empty building, basically. Nobody was there but us. So we had the opportunity to converse. And we sat down for about an hour. And when it was all done, they much, uh, they, they, they understood the slavery abolitionist movement of the day and had made a pledge to me personally that they would continue to collect artifacts uh, from modern slavery as well as the slavery of the past, as well as to teach it. And I saw months later that they started playing the film 13th, having watch parties for it. So I was very, I was very happy to see that. So with that being said, you know, we, we've got a little connection there. Here's what I want to do with the future. As you know, education is a key element to the abolitionist movement right now, because most people don't understand it simply because they've never really read the 13th amendment or they've never thought about it or or any number of ways that they've been miseducated along the way. Uh, I I, I have spoken with you about this. I know a few of the answers, but I want you to say I'm on the program. What can we do to correct that so that the education start more securely on truth and not based on a lie uh, that we've been told over and over again. Well, um, you know, one of the things is to do what we're doing right now, because, you know, as we talked this afternoon, since Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, was published, historians alone have written about, I would say, 24 books. That's a lot of books, actually, on prisons uh, and policing in in the 20th century um but uh, there's a disconnect i think sometimes between activists and scholars and education and Mm -hmm. the, the first thing is we're doing right now is building that bridge and the one thing that i took out of my book was that you can't confront something as powerful and as thick as the carceral state without alliances and allies it's got to be a broad-based network. So, so we're building that network now, um, and we have to have that education in these conversations. And it is, I think, beginning to proliferate. I mean, films like The 13th are, are out there. But just like the, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement took sort of years for it to really 
fully break through the core of people's consciousness and had to document over and over again the kinds of abuses it, it was seeing. It requires these books um, and it requires these conversations, but we have to have them outside of the classroom too. Um, some of my colleagues, and this is something that I'm interested in doing too, have done prison um, prison education programs. Um, and of course, uh, you know, we're in touch with, with Ivan Kilgore and his effort to publish the work of incarcerated shout out people. To Ivan. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Ivan. Ivan was yeah, the one that brought us together. Here with you. Yeah. And I, right. And I'm the reason he's the reason I'm on this program. And he's an incredibly brilliant person, incredibly brilliant and incredible energy. And, and the same with the, the free Alabama movement, um, that, that, that there's an understanding that one way to escape the bounds of, um, incarceration and cages is through the mind, right? That that is its own rehabilitation. Um, uh, and, and so there's a lot of shared, commitment there to knowledge for knowledge's sake, but also sharing that knowledge that we have to have these writers that come out of the prison system as well and hear their voice um, and their perspective, not just about memoirs about their prison experience, but as, as writers and as educators. And as I told you, Max, and I mean this very sincerely in Yusuf, the people that allowed me to write this book were the people that lived it, and they... They educated me in many ways, um, and so I'm just reflecting back what I learned uh, in my oral histories with them. Um, just for our listeners' it's sake, amazing. To abolition today, everything that we're talking about, including access to be able to purchase Professor's uh, book, is available on our Facebook page at Abolition Today. Make sure you like and follow us, and keep up to date with what we are doing here at this program. Um, Okay, so that sounds real good, but here's here's where the problem is, right? There's not a consensus. So the agitation creates uh, the situation where scholars start writing about the prison system, but they're not all in agreement about what it is that they're writing about, you know, or what it is mm-hmm. that they're facing, and that causes a lot of confusion. So you have Michelle well, what they call it. Yeah, it's a caste system, and you'll come over here and say it's modern-day slavery, and which one of you is correct is left to the reader to decide. So we're trying to help to create curriculums that will present the facts as we know them, which counter the lies that we have been told. And uh, you're giving me an opportunity, I understand, to help to bring that into fruition in the future in uh, Tulsa. Am I correct? Yeah, we. Um, I'm also part of an organization, and people can – um, go to this on on, uh, on on the web called Historians uh, Against Slavery, um, and we're doing a, co- a conference um, uh, to commemorate but to rethink racial violence in the 100th year anniversary of the Tulsa uh, uh, race massacre. Um, but, uh, you know, I think to your question, I mean, academics, that's what we do. We're going to disagree and have different positions, but it's got to be beyond the book, right? That's why we're having this conversation. And the one thing I think we all agree upon is that, um, you know, the American state, as it currently is, is one where incarceration and prisons replicate all of the inequalities in our society. 
They replicate sexism. They replicate racism. They replicate class inequalities. And they amplify it. And not only do they amplify it, they maintain it. Because when someone gets out of prison, all of the inequalities that they went into are just compounded. It's more difficult to get a job. It's impossible to get a loan. Um, it's difficult to move your life forward. And then they go back into the prison itself. The French theorist Michel Foucault had a quote that I loved. He went to look at Attica in 1991, and he called prisons um, a prodigious stomach, uh, a kidney, a machine for elimination, eliminating that which has already been eliminated. Because that's what prisons do. They eliminate people from our population. But then, as he said, it crunches them up and destroys them and then spits them back out. But the condition under which they've been spit back out is so broken that they re-enter the system again. And so we have to, we have to understand what a pernicious, pernicious system it is. Um, not just a system of enslavement, but a system of human destruction. Human destruction. And, and is that really what we want a quote-unquote criminal justice system to be? A system that upholds racial inequalities, that upholds uh, class inequalities, that makes sure that the people that come out of that system are so broken and have so little opportunity that the likelihood of them reoffending is incredibly high, right? And that's when I'm amazed that I meet people like Ivan, because they've broken that cycle. And they've done it through, through either their activism and their prison organizing, as the Free Alabama movement has done, or uh, for Ivan, you know, uh, through, with, with his uh, activism in terms of literary uh, activism. And that's an incredible thing because they're being their own rehabilitators. So anyways, I'm going on a tangent again. But that, that's where I find a lot <laughs> of excitement is people's own activism to change themselves. Robert, um, I do not want to impose the last word, but I do want to say something, and then we're going to take a, our, our music break and listen to a clip. Uh, on the other side of that clip and music break, I would like your comments on it, and then I want to give you the opportunity to tell the audience anything you want to tell them, as well as uh, give them the information on how they can support your efforts and pick up uh, your book as well. So what I want to say is this. I don't personally agree with the idea that it's okay to have all facts presented as some form of legitimate argument. You know, uh, if this is not a fact, then you're not really presenting a legitimate argument as an opinion or theory or something like that. Uh, Slavery didn't end in no shape, way, or form, whether legally or physically. And if we can't seem to come to that agreement... We're still lost, and that's where we've got to lock our eyes on, just like those prisoners did, for my opinion. All right, so here's the clip. Uh, I will explain just a little bit about it real quick and then let you guys listen to it. Uh, on Live from the Plantation, a couple of days ago, we had a representative from uh, an old organization, Nation Inside, which provides a magazine. And the representative is doing a wonderful uh, organizing effort uh, called Cage COVID. And it's you know appeals to get the governors to re- mass release people uh, during this pandemic, which is uh, almost a death sentence inside prisons. And I just mm-hmm. wanted to ask some simple questions because he made mass incarceration the uh, 
focus of their efforts that they were doing, challenging mass incarceration. And that's going to be followed by Rory uh, with Forbidden Knowledge featuring Big Crit. So you'll be listening to me first, and then Rory with Forbidden Knowledge featuring Big Crit. Robert, hold on for a few minutes and listen with us, and we'll see you on the other side, okay? Sounds good. All right. Abolition. 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 Max, uh, let's go ahead and try to add a caller. All right. Uh, well, I did have a, a, a question that I want to ask you, guests. Is that okay? Okay. Go ahead, First, I would like to say that I appreciate what you guys are trying to achieve here. Um, that is highly commendable. Um, what my question is is regards to Nation Inside and what's right on the front of it. Uh, three simple questions. One, it says that Nation Inside is a platform that connects and supports people who are building a movement to systemically challenge mass incarceration in the United States. Okay, what exactly is this mass incarceration thing that you want to challenge? What, what is that? Hey, uh, yeah, so uh, that's referring to the past, uh, you know, 50 years, 40, 50 you, years. Where, before, you, uh, before you answer that, before you answer that, yeah. let me explain something. Max is a <laughs> slavery abolitionist, and he does not believe in the word mass incarceration. He studies the history of it. He can give you the history that it only became into existence when Michelle Alexander's book um, was published. So I'm just preparing you for what you're dealing with right now. You're okay. With a I appreciate that. <laughs> go ahead. I appreciate that. Look, you know, I organized through Nation Inside. Uh, I also consider myself a prison abolitionist, and I work with uh, several other organizations. And uh, so, you know, I would probably don't disagree on this. You know, I think there's value uh, to. The phrase mass incarceration, as it refers to, you know, the 700 percent, some increase uh, really following the civil rights movement to where uh, the prison system skyrocketed, you know, and and at its peak was being building a new facility uh, every two weeks throughout the 90s. And, you know, so I grew up in that uh, time period, you know, and and so I can see the value. I can also see you know, the, the necessity to push much beyond uh, just ending mass incarceration and specifically uh, calling calling it what it is and ending the slavery system that, you know, that incarceration in itself uh, picked up and and carried on forward. So I would love to hear your, your thoughts on that too, but, you know, uh, I don't think we're yeah, opposed. I, I don't... I, yeah, I, I don't want to take up too much time. I just wanted to get answers on a couple of questions. The other question was, is mass incarceration illegal anywhere? Is it illegal anywhere? Yes. Uh, is it a trick question? No. Is it illegal? <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know of anywhere that's illegalized mass incarceration, but... All right, and the final question, and this again is just a simple question: Can mass incarceration be abolished? Can mass incarceration be abolished? I mean, I think we're talking abolition. We we talk about abolishing the entire prison system, uh, and you know, so okay. mass incarceration. I appreciate your answer. Thank you very much. Yep. I, I, I see where you're coming from. I know that Nation Inside is an old and well-respected organization, and I was just 
curious as a representative of Nation Inside uh, exactly how you felt about those things, the descriptions, and uh, whether or not they can be abolished or if they're even illegal. And I, I, I understand. So thank you for answering that question. Forbidden knowledge can destroy mankind. large hours of my days alone I don't believe we share this universal space alone I think we got a lot from them they gave us phones internet and now we all know what is forbidden knowledge forbidden knowledge is too great for a man think if man could read your mind you think that man understands how to use it with integrity not conquering land would it be good if we increase the lifespan well that's forbidden knowledge forbidden knowledge can destroy mankind we can grow out of control like cancer under the skin of mother nature busy cities much alike to a tumor too many cells the residents the bodies polluter i say wusa and ali you the chubby doobie the jew the child of jacob i know my history i know we are moors there's a universe in her afro hold us back though there's a power in the black folk well that's forbidden knowledge at first they want to keep us separate but equal but it's not so we fight against the hatred and evil now they let us think we got it and they killing our people why does history repeat like a sequel well that's forbidden knowledge it's got a man watching tv like people rewinding his favorite parts to playing back like a tivo have i wrote this shit before it all feels like a redo and deja vu is left to die like our dreams do but that's forbidden knowledge i have some shocking memories as a kid waking up onto a table a lab some type of biz too vivid to be a nightmare mom would tell me that shit can't remember anything that they did guess that's forbidden knowledge They rang out in the neighborhood where the youth's misunderstood Fighting over concrete squares where the laws just ain't no good I think the agenda's meant to kill us all Like what good is education long as you can ball Standing on the couch inside the club and hit the mall Billy feet a bum, but you buy it all I think they laughing at us Cause while we watching some cable They was talking about the economy, chef croppers and stables How to keep a horse running his course Give him some blinders so that he lack when most fools ever right beside him His own kind I pray you dig deeper if you don't Find what you're looking for on the surface The knowledge that you need can't be next to church If you every bit of work, they're not worthless You kings and queens were meant for better things Than flexing on the scene or bursting out the seams of your blouse That you told yourself you never wear outside your mama's highs Cause the energy your lens put strong women down Down 
Brother, look, you don't need to go to jail just to read you a book. I wonder what Malcolm found after going to Mecca. Or the mind state of Martin after visiting Selma. Two leaders that were slain for speaking the topic on the schemas and the reapers of forbidden knowledge. 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 Forbidden knowledge. Abolition. 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 Ooh-wee. You just heard a clip of Max on Live from the Plantation with Nation Inside Rep followed by Rory, Forbidden Knowledge, featuring Big Crit. Max, <laughs> you know, I was I was laughing as you were interviewing him because, you know, the first thing that got me was how Ben New tried to warn him. You know, that was like, you know, it was like, look, Max is a slavery abolitionist, you know, so beware. <laughs> and then when he said, is that a trick question? I just lost it, and I was glad I was on mute. <laughs> Yo, I, I come with a disclaimer, man. That's something. You know, when the brother who's in solitary confinement got to give me a disclaimer, you know I'm doing a hell of a good job. Right, right. <laughs> uh, what do you think of that there, brother Robert? Matt, I'm glad you were nicer to me. Uh... <laughs> I, I can't hear you too well. You might want to get close to your mic. Oh, can you can you not? Did we lose him? Uh, I think he's moving forward. Here we go. I can hear you. I just could, you sounded like you were far away. Uh, is this better? Yes, sir. It is. Okay. So I I said, well, Max, I was I'm glad you were nicer to me. <laughs> <laughs> Yo. You know, I mean, I mean, here's what I think, Max. I mean, and and uh, you you know, you concluded our discussion on on saying that the the fact that has to be agreed upon is that. Um, prisons are slavery. Uh, uh, slavery exists, and it exists because of the Thirteenth Amendment. Uh, now, Absolutely. Congress has has before it right now an opportunity to change that. There has been a, a, an effort to put before Congress um, an effort to o- to overturn the Thirteenth Amendment, um, and we now have a Democratic Congress and a Democratic President. So the proof will be will be in the pudding. Uh, but the work that you do, Max, where you go state to state, and you and I talked about this earlier today too, is really important because prisons and policing function out of the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution. That mm-hmm. gives policing power to the states. So what does that mean? That means that when we want to undo the thicket of the carceral state or modern-day slavery – we have to look not only to the federal level and who's president, but who is our congressional representative? Who is our state let senator? Who is our mm-hmm. governor? Because that right. is where a lot of the political work has to be done as well. And most people, and, it, and, and, and probably I among them, don't know who their state representative is or their state senator. But one thing that, that those on the right know, Alec, knows this. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, they're the right-leaning mm-hmm. lobbying group. The gun mm-hmm. rights, NRA knows this. There's a lot of power in the states. And that is where I think that the, the abolition movement has got to start looking more towards. And you do so much of this, Max, already, so I know I'm preaching to the converted. But we've got we've to have more state <laughs> involvement because those guys hold a lot of power over our lives. And, uh, and, and that is where we can start to undo uh, uh, mass incarceration, not at the federal level, you know. Trump had a prison reform bill. What did that do? That really hasn't changed much of the shape of of you know the current system. So, anyways, that was yes. a great clip. 
thank you, thank you. And the music was awesome, uh, Rory with uh, Big Crit, Forbidden Knowledge. Because what we're talking about basically is forbidden knowledge. It was repressed. It was repressed widely, and it's still being repressed. This information, uh, people literally skip over it. I remember the curator of the Thirteenth Amendment did an anniversary uh, showing where he explained it, and he literally skipped over the whole section about uh, except for prisoners duly convicted. Like he purposely did it as he was explaining it. I was like, why? Why would you do that? But you know, it's maybe you have a better answer than I do. I, I don't have a better answer, and I have to confess, right, I come from the historical profession, and for years, uh, historians wrote about the 13th Amendment as the the amendment that ended slavery, right? It was seen as a very, very positive thing, This is, and this that's the great, you know, I want to say irony, but it's not irony. It's a, it's an, it's a system that understood that it had to have a mechanism for racial oppression. That's the reality of the American system is it understands, it knows it's quite self-aware and it knows that it's, it's system has got to be based on some measure of racial oppression. So if the bubble burst over there to my left and, and quote unquote antebellum slavery ends, well, it's got a, it's got a fail safe. And that's that 13th Amendment clause. The and exception that's why, clause. Uh, yes, the, the exception clause. And suddenly, out of that, erupted the convict lease system, where there were very, very, very few prisons in the United States um, before, uh, or particularly in the South, before the, um, uh, be- before the, the Civil 13th War. Amendment. And yeah, suddenly, right. suddenly they burst out, and they certainly weren't, they certainly weren't spaces where where large numbers of black people were held. Um, that all erupted out of the convict lease system. The same is yeah. true after the Civil Rights Movement. You have a Civil Rights Act, you have a Voting Rights Act. Well, mm-hmm. what's the response to that? That Nixon the war on drugs. Yeah, the war on drugs. The war on drugs. Because that undoes everything that the Civil Rights Movement had fought to do. Right, And we forget, too, this is another important thing to think about, is that prisons also represent congressional representation. You know, I live up in New York, and in New York, since 1982, all prisons have been built upstate, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But the the prison population comes from the urban city, the area around New York City, and they're overwhelmingly black and brown people. Five five neighborhoods out in New York City. Yeah, but when they go to that upstate prison, what they do is that that creates congressional districts. There are seven mm-hmm. congressional districts in upstate New York where the prison population is more than 50% of that congressional district, mm-hmm. yet none of those people can vote. So it's worse than three-fifths of a man. It's a one-to-one representation that shifts power to rural spaces, to more white spaces, and in New York's case, more Republican you know, areas. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's geographical displacement and dispowerment. It's also uh, racial gerrymandering. Um, you know, totally. they they uh, use this population of predominantly black and brown people that are inside prisons as representation of their diversity, which doesn't really exist. Um, so yeah, it, it's all part of the system of modern day slavery and human trafficking that we're yeah. dealing with. So with and that being said, oh, go ahead. Hold on, hold on. I have, I have one last question because. All right. Uh, we have a historian here, and 
I think we would be remiss if we don't get some something, some type of answer out of him about the uh, the debate over the 1619 project and the 1776 commission, one of the last acts that uh, Trump did before he left office, where you know they they want to wipe away from history that America's legacy was built on slavery. Uh, are you familiar with this, uh, Robert? And uh, what do you have to say on that? Well, unfortunately, I am, and, and of course, um, you know the um, you know the Trump administration is aware of, of um, well, they're probably aware of the meaning of this old Soviet joke, and the Soviet joke was that um, uh, the the future is known; um, it's the past that is uncertain. And what that what that joke was about was that the person that controls our past and our history can control uh, our future. Um, Mm. And so they don't want that 1619 project told. Um, They don't want to look at the ways in which um, racism and racial oppression is built into the American uh, constitutional system and our society and our politics, because to do that um, means that you would have to truly reconcile and acknowledge um, racism as a core structural part of American society and politics. So um, history is history is something that they don't actually want told, and it shows like this, and that's why I'm so grateful that you had me on and why history matters, because uh, how we tell our past will chart our path for the future. You know, I I would like to share a quote from that actual uh, 1776 commission, and you can hear mm-hmm. the Fox News logical fallacies, fallacies just all throughout it. It starts with slavery in bold letters, the most common charge leveled against the founders and hence against our country itself is that they were hypocrites who didn't believe in their stated principles, and therefore the country has they built rests on a lie. This charge is untrue and has done enormous damage, especially in recent years, with a devastating effect on our civic unity and social fabric. Many American laborers under the many Americans labor under the illusion that slavery was somehow a uniquely American evil. It is essential to insist at the outset that the institution be seen in a much broader perspective. It is very hard for people brought up in the comforts of modern America in a time in which the idea that all human beings have inviolable rights and inherent dignity is almost taken for granted, to imagine the cruelties and enormities that were endemic in earlier times. But the unfortunate fact is that the institution of slavery has been more the rule than the exception throughout human history. These MFers just literally said, they're doing it over there, <laughs> so we do right. it too. You know, that's what it's sad. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a straw man argument. It's a straw man argument, and it's 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 trying to more or less, you know, it's it's doing what you would expect it to do, and what you would expect Trump uh, and his administration to do. They're trying to elide truth. That's what the whole Trump administration is about: avoiding. Truth, And I think I said something earlier that the criminal justice system depends upon prevarication or lying for its existence. Um, And in in the same way, 
um, uh, what what the Trump administration is doing in this 1776 uh, commission is doing is it doesn't want to acknowledge or deal with the historical truth, which means dealing with the past of slavery. Because if you deal with the past history of slavery or the history of racial oppression more broadly, then you have to deal with its manifestation in the present, which is where we are all today, a society mm-hmm. that is still structured as racist and unequal. Yes, sir. Hey, I want to say thank you for spending time with us here in Abolition Today and helping to educate further. Uh, I appreciate the efforts that you're doing to unify, uh, bring us together across boundaries in order to be able to um, discuss these issues with the intellectual world and the academics. So thank you for breaking so much ground on that, for being here today. Uh, Hopefully we'll have these more conversations both privately and here on Abolition Today uh, while we work towards ending slavery in the United States. Yusuf? Yeah, I, I definitely ditto uh, Max's uh, sentiments. You know, it was a pleasure uh, having you on the show today. Don't be a stranger. You know, hopefully you tune in in the future and, you know, maybe call in on some of the topics, you know, and definitely come back, you know. And because, you. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's been very eye-opening, great conversation. That's why I've been so silent because I've been taking a lot of notes and I've also been skimming through the book as you were talking, you know, it's just so, so much great information. So yeah, definitely. Thank you. And of course, you know, the floor is open to you now for you to close out with whatever information you want or did you have anything else to say, Max? I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm just echoing your sentiments. Like I'd like to give you a few minutes to go ahead and tell our audience anything you want to tell them and, and please remind them where you can get the book in addition to abolition today at Facebook. Well, I just want to thank you, Max, and thank you, Yusuf, for having me. It was a really informative conversation. You know, Max, the first time I heard you talk was, I don't remember what event it was, but Ivan put me on to it. And free the 13th. Uh, I, I was, uh, free the 13th. And I was just spellbound by what you had to say, the knowledge that you brought, um, and uh, the work that you're doing to undo modern-day slavery in these individual state constitutions. So once again, you know, it's an opportunity as an educator to not just um, share my work, but also to learn uh, about what the movement is doing today um, and and an opportunity really to sit at your feet as well. Um, I guess I just want to say two things um, to the audience, which is, um, one, that there is so much work now that replicates the struggle that I write about in the 1970s and 1980s. We had the nationwide prison labor strike in 2016 and in 2018. Of course, mm-hmm. that followed on the heels of, the, of what happened in Georgia in 2010 and in California. And so this is an incredible moment also of, of consciousness, not just the, the Black Lives Matter movement, but its corollary, which is how do we undo this system of enslavement and racial debasement. So I just I just want to also give a shout out to the Free Alabama Movement, uh, to Bennu uh, and Kinetic Justice uh, for continuing to talk with me. And I'd love to continue to talk with both of you. And if people want to get this book, We Are Not Slaves, um, I do have a, a, they can go to the UNC uh, Press, University of North Carolina Press, but I want to give out a discount code, uh, which is my personal code, 
and it is a 40% discount off on the book, which is pretty good. And that code is O1DAH40, and that you can only use that code at the UN, UNC press site. But thank you both for having me on the show. My pleasure, brother. Well, thank uh, we you. Thank you. Talking in the future, man. <laughs> you know, yeah. you bring me down so hard up in here. I had to double up on that one. <laughs> it's a masterclass on modern slavery abolition, and you know, those out there who think that somehow they are superior or master class or that we deserve to be in prisons, they're sitting there going. If we'd known you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own fucking cotton. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I had to pull it in there, man. man. Yeah, I might remember that from episode one of this year uh, where we played the, the full clip of that racist rant. <laughs> but, yeah, that's going to be a regular on the program every now and then. We're going to pop that one out. <laughs> Pick your own freaking cotton. All right, yeah. well, we, we learned a lot today. Uh, we shared a lot today. We still got a lot more. Uh, one of the things that I did want to play was that clip from the uh, Louisiana Parish Sheriff, uh, which is uh, being explained by Anna Kasparian. She goes off. Like, she, she, she is so upset about this, and she should be. We all should be when you hear things like this said open in the public. Uh, so mm-hmm. let's go ahead and play that clip, and we'll talk about it when we come back on the other side. You're listening to Abolition Today with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. Our guest was Robert T. Chase, author of We Are Not Slaves, State Violence, Coerced Labor, and Prisoners' Rights in Post-War America. We'll be right back. Abolition. Abolition. The state of Louisiana is finally undergoing uh, some reforms when it comes to its criminal justice system, and there's one sheriff who has been extremely outspoken against these reforms. Sheriff Steve Pratter of uh, Parish, uh, Caddo Parish, Louisiana. Now, um, he's concerned because uh, nonviolent offenders could potentially get released early, and, um, you know, they would also be, uh, uh, they wouldn't be prosecuted as harshly under these reforms. And the reason why the sheriff's not happy about this is, well, these nonviolent offenders provide slave labor for us. And so what are we going to do if we can't have that slave labor in our state? If you don't believe me, just take a listen. Place out there, I don't want uh, state prison, okay? They are a necessary evil to keep the doors open that we keep a few or keep some out there. And that's the ones that you can work. That's the ones that can pick up trash, the work release programs. But guess what? Those are the ones that they're releasing. In addition to the, in addition to the bad ones, and I call these bad, in addition to them, they're releasing some good ones that we use every day to, to wash cars, to change oil in our cars, to cook in the kitchen, to do all that where we save money. Well, they're going to let them out. Oh, it's unbelievable. He's, first of all, he's complaining about releasing the good ones. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Okay, so there's two ways of interpreting uh, this guy's statements about the good ones. Okay. Mm-hmm. One is, um, well, they're good guys and they should be out of prison, but they wash my car and they're my, and I use them to be my, you know, cooks and stuff. So I don't. Slave want labor, to... slave labor. Right. Right. Okay. I, I, I enjoy 
continuing to imprison nonviolent offenders for lengthy periods of time because they provide slave labor for me. The other uh, thing is not much better. He might mean the good ones as in the ones who uh, will do what they're told to do, okay? The ones that do my work. The other ones, they're not broken. We haven't broken them in What a disgusting individual. What a dis We're talking about people's lives, right? We're talking about people who already have their lives destroyed because they uh, were convicted of a felony, a nonviolent conviction, okay? And oftentimes it has to do with drugs, something that, you know, wasn't there a video recently released of like the Dolphins coach snorting lines of coke? Does he deserve to be in prison? Should we throw him in prison and make him I, do slave labor? Oh, but that's a white dude in power who's got some money, so we don't want to we don't want to mess with him. But there's a bunch of people who have no power whatsoever, and it's totally fine to keep them behind bars, destroy their lives, and force them to do slave labor, so this this sheriff could live his cushy little life. It's disgusting. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard a clip of L.A. Sheriff Steve Prater by Anna Kasparian and Uger, uh I forgot his last name that fast, of the, yeah, yeah, of the uh, Young Turks, and they really went off, especially Anna. She really went off, just like you said, and I'm speechless behind it. That he that he uh was bold enough to come out and say it. I mean we know it goes on in many places. Even the Clintons did it when uh uh Bill was governor of Arkansas. You know, but just to come out and mention stuff like this and basically brag about it. You know, it's just really bold and yeah, everybody should be angry about that. Yes, yeah, it's very much an admission of guilt. You're telling people exactly why you want them in there, because they're the good ones. And what did Sank say? Uh, the good ones versus the bad ones, as in meaning you already broke them. They're broken right. now, so you can trust them to do what you tell them to do. Uh, wash your car, clean your toilet, whatever the hell you want them to do for free. And you're going to lose money and personnel if you let them go, which is what people are trying to do. Let the good ones go. Wow, man. Right. And this is in this generation. This is being said and done right now by active duty sheriffs running a freaking plantation, thinking he's a king out in Louisiana. But we got news for you. Louisiana has got their legislation to end slavery in that state. They have an exception clause, too. And shout out to Decarcerate Louisiana. Uh, Brother Absolutely. Loma sent me that clip, as a matter of fact. Uh, Brother Curtis Davis, they're all working. Uh, all the people out there are working hard to get this abolished in Louisiana, the prison capital of the world. We, we actually have someone uh, – oh, that's, that's Alabama, I think, 205, because we have a caller that just raised their hand. I don't know if all we right. have time to get them in real quick. Yeah, we can squeeze in a, a couple callers real quick. Uh Okay, 205 area code, you're in the air with uh, Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan on Abolition Today. Uh, state who you are and, you know, whatever your uh, question or comment is. Welcome to the show. Greetings, Max Parthas, and greetings <laughs> to the, uh, the, the commentators. This is yes, Abolition speaking to you. Oh, assalamu alaikum, my brother. Walaikum asalaam, brother. Welcome you know, to I, the show, I, man. You know, I spent 26 years in Alabama prison, so coming from one 
coming from on the life without parole to where I'm at now. So I came in late, but I just wanted to uh, acknowledge that I'm here, Max, and, uh, you know, I support you in everything, and I see everything that you uh, post, brother. I'm not going to offer any comments right now because, you know, I listened to the, the clip in a few moments ago, and, you know, you know, I've been with work release guys and the good and the bad, as he said. But mm-hmm. no one can determine who's good or bad just by the location of where they're at because you don't know when a man's heart changed. I didn't make it to work release. I came straight from behind the fence. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I have I have participated in every avenue of slave labor in Alabama State from being on the farm, on the shotgun, to you name it, you know. I've been there. So I just wanted to let you know, brother, that I did participate, and I'm here to support you. Thank you, brother. Thank you. We 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 trying to expose what's going on here. You know what I mean. People need to know the the conditions that are, are going on and what the thought process is of those who are in freaking power taking advantage of y'all, the good ones, man. Like, hey, what, <laughs> brother? Yeah, it it kind of you know it was kind of you know to hear him say that you know it's it, I had to laugh for real because I'd never heard that clipping, but to hear him say that uh, you know I had to laugh. <laughs> yeah, like. It's funny in a painful way, right? Yes, sir, it is. You know. Mm-hmm. But that's how that's how a lot of that's the mentality of a lot of the small towns here in Alabama because like I said, I I have been in those situations and that's how they see the ones that make it to those levels. They see them as the ones that are broken and those are the good ones that'll get out and they feel like, you know, hey, they're gonna do right. But that's not always the case though. It's not always the case. Not always. Yeah, in fact, many of them are the ones that end up coming back, you know, because, True. you know, they didn't do any real serious time and they felt, you know, I don't know if they say it in the South, but up here in the North, you hear a lot of people say, you know, such and such jail is sweet. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you've heard that before, where they say such and such jail is sweet. Everything is nice there or whatever. They say statements like that. Yeah, they say it down here too, and that's only that's only a description that you know you in a you in a facility to where you kind of laid back, you can get to go out, you can get to do your little thing, and then don't nobody bother you. But at the same time, some of those same people would be the same ones that are offer you up to the police so they can stay where they at when you doing something that they feel is you know counterproductive to what they got going on. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And and Thank so, you for, for sure. Go ahead, Yusuf. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. Well, I, I was gonna ask. So, I mean, I kind of know the answer already. I just like to hear it from others. Those that aren't broken, how do they view the quote-unquote good ones? <laughs> they are. They are. They are considered. You know, down here. You know, you. It's, it's still the same term, you know, we call them house niggas, you know, they they snitches, they work under the police, and they work for the captains, they work for those in charge, and like I said, those are the ones, and like I said, that's not always the case with some, because you have some in those positions that the ones that aren't broken, they're only manipulating their way to get in there to help the unbroken ones. Mm. No, man, I'm just taking it back. I would like to say that we we do have a couple minutes for other people. If you want to uh, chime in, uh, just press number one on your keypad so that we know you have a question or comment. 
And also, uh, the number to call in is 515-605-9814. We've got a few minutes that we can use to have our discussion with our community, maybe comment on anything you've heard or like to share. Uh, Appreciate you, brother, uh, for always supporting. Yes, sir, and I appreciate y'all. But also supporting Live from the Plantation, another program from Abolition Today, uh, which is uh, hosted, developed, created, uh, and uh, produced by inmates themselves. Uh, groundbreaking. We didn't think we'd get more than three or four programs out of it before they shut it down, but we'll be looking at number episode 20. Coming yeah, up, episode uh, this 20 Thursday. this week, man. <laughs> yeah, episode 20 coming up this Thursday. So the brothers found a voice an opportunity for their voice to be heard and they're exercising it. And we are greatly, uh, we're, we're proud to say that uh, they're doing it using the resources that we have available for them. So, awesome. Max, Max, before we go off, I wanted to read something from Jamelia Land that she posted as an update of what's mind. going on in California. Yeah, <laughs> okay, mind, great. Uh, California is on its way to removing involuntary servitude from the state constitution. And this is what Jamelia posted on behalf of Samuel, that's her husband, myself, our core team, and Samuel, the Samuel Brown, he's currently incarcerated. She says on behalf of Samuel, myself, our core team, the coalition, we are building that every person in the state of California and throughout this country who is fighting for the end of legalized slavery, I want to thank you, Assembly, Assembly Member Sidney uh, Kamlager-Dove. Thank you and your staff for taking the time to work with me on this. To my Abolish Slavery National Network and March On family, thank you for all your support and unwavering dedication to the fight for people. Together, we will end involuntary servitude in California and throughout the nation. If you are interested in joining us, please please send me a message. And then she quotes the third piece of legislation, Assembly Constitutional Amendment 3, ACA 3, aims to amend Article 1, Section 6 of the California Constitution to prohibit slavery and involuntary servitude without exception. As it stands, California prohibits slavery and involuntary servitude except except to punish crime. Such conditional language exists in the constitutions of nearly 30 states, building off the momentum of statewide efforts in Colorado, Nebraska, and Utah, where similar legislation has been passed, Kamlaga hopes to push California toward codifying complete and unconstitutional abolition. You got me smiling from ear to ear. Uh, Sister Jamelia yeah. and uh, Brother Samuel was on our season finale of uh, 2020. So you might want to check that out if you're listening. Uh, they, and you can hear from them in, your own, in their own words. But powerful duo, and she is out here doing a damn thing. Congratulations, California, about to end slavery. Who the fuck did? Louisiana about to end slavery. Vermont about to end slavery. New York about to end. New Jersey about to end slavery. South Carolina. We can go through 27 states like that now. Absolutely. We have uh, area code 210 as raised. I believe that's Savannah. I'm going to take a guess and say that's Savannah. Area code 210, you're on abolition today with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. Welcome to the show. Thank you, brothers. This is Clarence Bell from San Antonio, Texas. How y'all doing? Hey, brother Peace, Clarence. Brother. How's it going, man? Peace. Welcome to Abolition Today. I just wanted to tell you that you're doing a wonderful job and keep up the good work. 
and I have three areas that I want to focus on for African liberation, which is what I'm all about. The law, which y'all are working on, the, the uh, abolition movement, trying to get the mm-hmm. 13th Amendment abolished. It's money, economic liberation, group, group economics, and it's spirit. It's our ancestors. It's our it's our spirituality from Africa. It's uh, Kemet. It's Ma'at. We need to focus on these three to liberate ourselves. And I don't think anybody's ever put that together. I'm the founder of Liberation.org and the author of Journey into Greater Love. It's a book about healing. It's a book about it's an African science fiction. It's a it's a screenplay that I wrote, but it's also a book um, that's about African liberation, African science fiction. Just wanted to, to throw those two cents in. If I got questions, I'm I'm listening. I appreciate you a long term supporter, brother Clarence, and always uh, much love to you, man. And uh, mm-hmm. here we coming from. It's going to be, you know, we have a hell of a problem just convincing people that slavery still exists to also get them involved in commit and Maat uh, would be a Herculean effort. So I'm going to leave that in your arena to be able to put it together for them. And uh, we'll support in what way we can. Uh, basically, I just want to see my God people free and stay re-ended. You know what I mean? And when we yes, get to sir, the yes, end sir. game of this, when we get to the end game of this, and as you pointed out, we estimate about 70% of our prison and jail uh, population will be reduced. That's 70% of the resources being spent right now uh, that will be freed up to rebuild communities, uh, to help create jobs, mm-hmm. small restorative justice, absolutely yeah, restorative justice. Yes, and don't forget the money that we won't be spending anymore, seventy percent as well, uh, from the outside on those who are inside. So we, we don't, we won't be uh, supporting JPEG, and we won't be supporting all of these different prison-related organizations by the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars as we do right now. So yeah, the resources are going to be available for sure. And more power to you uh, with the, the Ma'at, uh, teaching those principles to the people and uh, leading them in that direction. I, I understand what you're saying, Max, but they're not giving us nothing good. And they're not in about our liberation. So even though we'll have that money free, it's going to be delayed and people are going to die in, in the cracks. Yeah. Uh, I, I expect it. I expect when I started this fight, I knew the blood would be as high as a river by the time we got to the end game. You know what I mean? Like, there's people dying right yeah, now. Uh, the blood is flowing all the time. While we were talking, it's likely that a cop killed somebody or somebody was murdered in prison or brutalized right. in prison, you know, just while we were talking. That's how prevalent it is. So, yeah, the sense of urgency is always there for me. Um, but you know how I am, brother. I'm going to keep that single-minded focus till the job is done uh, until I, I exactly. see the shores of the, of the promised land. <laughs> Exactly. You, you my uh-huh. mentor. You my you 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 my 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 spear, my shield. So keep on, stay strong. No doubt, brother. Well, we we're gonna open up one more line, but we got to keep it brief, please, because we we got to get into our final segment, which is awesome. Y'all do not want to miss this uh, bridging the gaps segment. It's very special. Uh, so two one six one, you're live on the, uh, here with us at Abolition today. Yeah, can y'all hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Scotty Reed, what's going on, brother? Hey, what's going on, yourself? Good to hear that you out the hospital, man, and, and you got over that attack on your on your body, man. So that's yes, great sir. To hear, yes, man. sir. Like, Thank we, you. We need 
We need you, bro. All right. Um, Thank you, brother. I got a bit of a good news, and I hope I don't have egg on my face later this week. But two weeks ago, I had read an article from uh, one of those stock market websites. I think it was Market Watch or something. And the guy who was writing the article was speculating that Joe Biden wasn't going to do anything about private prisons because he'd been quiet about it, and he didn't anticipate that market being harmed. So I read, came across an article today. It didn't confirm he was going to do it, but it said that this week Joe Biden may sign an executive order similar to what Obama did in his last 60 days, but it looks like Biden is going to stop the use of private prisons uh, by the federal government in his first 100 days. And, and that would, I don't have to tell you guys how enormous that would be. Yeah, that's, that's a big deal, but it is something also that will uh, play out impossibly in decades rather than immediately. Cause you know, those contracts are 20 and 25 years. And we don't know how deep they are with each state's contract. So we'll see. It'll be like a gradual decrease if it happens of those for-profit private prisons. Well, and that's, that's still well, a hell of a Max, I will remind you. I will remind you what happened when Obama signed it in the last 60 days. Yeah, it was August 19th, uh, 2018. 18 or 17. And what happened to the stock market as a result? Oh, yeah, they had oh, yeah. to halt trading on it because people were dumping their stocks in those. Yeah, right. we remember. <laughs> we bragged so about how, it all how day. Would this, how would this be any different? I, I don't think it will because most people don't understand the system in the way that we do. So it'll probably, if that happens, it'll put a shockwave through not only for-profit prison industries, but uh, prison-dependent industries because they're next on the hit list. Hey, but listen, guys, uh, Scotty and Max, we're short on time. Can we discuss right. this one next week? Can we table that to next week so we can do a yeah, little bit yeah. more research during the week and then we can discuss it because we're short on time and we have to uh, have a couple of more things to say before we close out the program. Sounds like a plan, brother. Thank you, okay. Scotty. Thank you, Scotty. All right. But, I'll, yeah, I'll, definitely I'll thank you for that information. Okay. All right, Yusuf, so let's give a shout-out to our sponsors. And I would like to make an appeal at first, if you don't mind. Um, we are, you know, uh, here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, our focus is on providing information and support for the slavery abolitionist movement, both past and present, as well as content. And uh, if you think that we've been doing that to a large degree to help you personally, please consider a donation. Our cash app is abolition capital A, and then CTR with a capital C. Abolition, capital A, CTR with a capital C. Uh, dollar sign first, of course. Our PayPal is abolitionistgmail.com, abolitionistcenter at gmail.com. And uh, we have a mailing list as well. I'll put it up on our Facebook page so you guys can have that information. But we do need help, and we depend on small donations in order to survive. So if you think we're helping out, we appreciate yours. Yusuf? Yes, and I'd like to uh, mention our sponsors and our partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, I Am We, Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, Sema Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, 
prismatic dreams. Uh, so and of course, if there's nothing else, Max. Network. The Black Talk oh, Radio Network. Oh, man. I'm, I'm sorry, Scotty. I'm very sorry for that. <laughs> I didn't write it into my notes, but definitely the Black Talk Radio Network and Scotty Reed. And, you know, of course, all of our supporters, our listeners, once again, we thank Dr. Robert Chase for being on the program with us today. And we're going to get into our Bridging the Gap segment. Uh, this is going to be Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet J- uh, Jacobs. And it's going to be performed by Sharita Armstrong, followed by a track called Turntables from Janelle Monet. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube page for all the news, information, and music you hear on the program at uh, youtube.com slash abolition today. Also remember to join the movement to abolish slavery. It's abolishslavery.us to become a part of the solution. We'll be back on January 31st with another episode of Abolition Today, inshallah, God willing. Don't forget to tune into Live from the Plantation, Thursday nights at 7 p.m. Central. This week will mark the 20th episode, so definitely tune in for that. Uh, if there's nothing else, Max, you have anything else? You good? Um, we're planning a powwow for tomorrow right here on the show, so we'll have Scotty Reed come back in. We're going to try to get you, Johanan to come in. I found out why he didn't show up. We'll explain next week, as well as a few other veterans in this movement. And have kind of a power. So you you said tomorrow, but you meant next Sunday, right? Next week. Next Sunday, yes. Next Sunday. Okay. So, yeah, it's going to be an abolitionist powwow. So definitely tune in for that. Uh, next Sunday, 7 p.m., same back channel, same back time, right? So <laughs> until today.org. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and God bless. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. There is in the neighborhood a young colored carpenter, a freeborn man. We've known each other since childhood and we frequently meet together. We've become mutually attached and he proposes to marry me. Oh, I love him. But when I think that I'm a slave, and that the laws give no sanction to a marriage as such. Oh, my heart just sinks within me. My love, he, he wants to buy me, but I know that Dr. Flint is too, too willful and arbitrary a man to consent to that arrangement. When Dr. Flint learns of my wish to be married, he summons me. So, you want to be married, do you, and do a free nigger? Yes, sir. Well, I'll soon show you whether I'm your master or that nigger fellow your honor so highly. If you must have a husband, you may take up with one of my slaves. Don't you suppose, sir, that a slave can have some preference about marrying? Do you suppose that all men are alike to her? Do you love this nigger? Yes, sir. How dare you tell me so? He, He springs upon me like a tiger and gives me a stunning blow. It is the first time he has ever struck me, and my fear does not enable me to control my anger. You have struck me for answering me, you honestly. How I despise you. Do you know what you have just said? Yes, sir. But your treatment drove me to it. Do you know that I have a right to do as I like with you? That I can kill you if I please. You have already tried to kill me, and I wish you had. But you have no right to do as you like with me. Silence! Ah, heavens, girl, you forget yourself too far. Are you mad? If you are, I will soon bring you to your senses. 
Do you think any other master would have borne what I have borne from you this morning? Many masters would have killed you on the spot. How would you like to be sent to jail for your insolence? I, I know I have been disrespectful, sir, but you drove me to it. I couldn't help it. As far as jail is concerned, there would be more peace for me there than there is here. Well, you deserve to go there. But I am not ready to send you there yet. There's no hope that the doctor will ever consent to sell me. He has an iron will and he's determined to keep me and to conquer me. My love, he's an intelligent and religious man. Even if he can't obtain permission to marry me while I'm a slave, the laws will give him no power to protect me from my master. I tell my love to go. Go to the free states where your tongue will not be tied and your intelligence will be of more avail to you. He leaves me. Still hoping that a day will come when I can be bought. With me, the lamp of hope has gone out. The dream of my girlhood is over. I feel, I feel lonely, desolate. Saturday night and Sunday too. True love on my mind. But Monday morning's good and soon, and the white man's got me quine. Blue jay pulled a four-horse plow. Sparrow, I can't you. Cause my legs are a little bit long and they might get broken too. Red bird sitting on a sycamore limb, singing out his soul. Big black snake crawled up that tree and swallowed that poor boy whole. Wild geese flying through the air, through the Sky of blue. Then now we're floating where the south wind blows. So why not me and you? Why not me and you? Dr. Flint has contrived a plan to build a small home for me in a secluded place miles away from town. Oh, I vow before my maker that I will never enter it. I'd rather live and die in jail. I'd rather toil on the plantation from morning till dark than to drag on from day to day to such a living death. I'm determined that my master whom I so hate and loathe, who has blighted the prospects of my youth and made my life a desert, should not, after my long struggle with him, succeed at last in trampling his victim under his feet. I would do anything, everything, for the sake 
Oh, defeating him. I can't be a pessimist. Because I'm alive. To be a pessimist means that you agree that human life is an academic matter. So I'm forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. The table about to turn. The table about to turn. The table about to turn. Yeah. Uh, I've been flipping through my timeline. Trying to get my mind right. My city cried out. I got to cool down. But I'm under pressure. Looking with my Crisco. Look at where my fist goes. A renegade when I'm in a rage. I got to cool down. But I'm under pressure. I keep my hands dirty. My mind clean. Got a new agenda. With a new dream. I'm kicking out the old regime. Liberation, elevation, education. America, you a lie. But the whole world about to testify. I said the whole world about to testify. And the table's out to. Just the table's out to. Today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. 
But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. 